0: What's up, OTP listeners? Marissa and Erica are here with a super special quick update for you. So you all know that we are part of a network of shows called Macmillan Podcasts. They're taking over the world. And our network is making new shows all the time. And today we're going to give you a sneak preview of one that is called Case Closed. Everyone knows how true crime is so hot right now, but literally every true crime show ends without a resolution. So in this show, you get that sweet, sweet resolution which for me is super important, so this show is kind of the best. The first season covers the murder of Rusty Snyderman. This guy was taking his son to preschool, got out of his car, and was shot four times in broad daylight. It's fucking wild. Really? It's a tale of love, lust, and what really pushes someone over the edge. I think you guys will love it. The host is one of our faves here at St. Martin's, Charlie Spicer. Charlie has literally been publishing true crime books for 33 years, a.k.a longer than Marissa's been alive (laughs) he is the expert on this stuff coming up you're going to hear episode one of his show now if you like the show you can listen to the rest exclusively on Stitcher Premium and for a free month of Stitcher Premium go to stitcherpremium.com slash case closed and use promo code true like one true pairing hope you listen and enjoy
1: In a sleepy Georgia suburb in an average parking lot on an average day, Rusty Snyderman brought his son Ian to preschool. It was a crisp November morning. Leafless trees stood against the gray sky. All was quiet until four shots pierced the silence. As Rusty Snyderman lay dying on the asphalt, a bearded man in a silver minivan sped away. What follows is the true account of Rusty's death. Who killed Rusty and why? Was it a robbery, a hit job, or something more sinister? My name is Charlie Spicer, and this is Case Closed. Charlie is a guy who can find a story that will grab you by the throat and not let you go until you finish the last page. We do look upon
2: him as an authority, not only within the company, but also within the industry in terms of true crime. Charlie has a love of the dark underbelly of the soul. He's this cheerful, chipper, happy looking guy, but it's just really fun to discuss true crime with him because he gets kind of so delighted by the devious things people do.
1: It's true. I do have an obsession with true crime. I love the stories and the characters and learning about their motivations. I'm an executive editor, and I've been publishing true crime since I began here, which was 33 years ago, so a long time. A few years ago, I was approached by journalist and Pulitzer-nominated author Michael Fleeman with The Snyderman Case. He went on to write the book Crazy for You, which makes up the bulk of the story you're about to hear. Gary Tideman will be narrating, and I'll be jumping in at pivotal moments with some thoughts and direction. Think of me as your true crime guide throughout this series. So let's get into the story. We start in Dunwoody, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta. It's mid-November in 2010. This is the kind of neighborhood where you'd expect to see women power-walking down tree-lined sidewalks. There's a shopping center in the heart of Dunwoody. It has a barbershop, a post office, and among other things, a preschool. This neighborhood, like so many in the suburbs, is sleepy with very little crime. That is, until the day of Rusty's murder. And so we begin here on that day. We begin at an ending.
2: Shortly before 9 a.m. on Thursday, November 18, 2010, a silver Infinity G35 pulled into the shopping center and came to a stop next to a red brick wall in front of the Dunwoody Prep Preschool. Russell Rusty Snyderman, 36 years old, Boyish-looking with glasses, had his three-year-old son Ian strapped in the car seat in the back. The preschool run had become the morning routine ever since Rusty lost his CFO job, and his wife Andrea took her first full-time employment in the corporate world. Andrea usually took their five-year-old daughter Sophia to kindergarten on the way to her office at GE Energy in Marietta. Later in the day, Rusty would pick up both Ian and Sophia and take Sophia to ballet. In between, he would squeeze in work on a voicemail company he was trying to start up. Rusty brought Ian to his classroom and returned to his car. His schedule this day called for an 11.30 a.m. meeting with a potential business partner. Based on his casual dress, it appeared that Rusty had planned to make the short drive back to his large house on Mangot Court and change clothes. By all accounts... Rusty never saw the silver minivan following him into the parking lot, and if he did, it didn't mean enough for him to do anything about it. Nor did he seem to recognize the driver, a bearded man in a hoodie sweatshirt, who had waited behind the wheel until Rusty emerged from the school. Rusty opened his car door, and the bearded man approached. If they exchanged words, nobody heard it. Without any apparent warning or provocation, the man pointed a handgun at Rusty's head. The gun was large and chrome-plated, the morning sun glinting off the polished surface. Four times the man pulled the trigger. Did you hear that? Fifty yards across the parking lot, Craig Kohlmeier, a chiropractor with a practice down the street, and his wife, Aaliyah Stodder, were standing outside the post office to buy stamps when they heard four popping sounds from the direction of the Dunwoody Prep Preschool and saw the silver minivan. A man was casually walking toward it, Kohlmeier would later say. The man stood medium height, between five nine and 5'11 and wore blue jeans. He turned and stared at the couple. In his hand was the silver gun. The man started the van, but struggled to get it in reverse, the gears grinding, as if he were unfamiliar with how to operate the vehicle. The van jerked away and peeled out of the parking lot, the tires screeching, raced down the street, made a U-turn, then continued on Mount Vernon Road into the rush hour traffic. On the pavement, next to a silver luxury car, a man lay dying. Inside Dunwoody Prep, school assistant Colleen McNulty had taken six three-year-olds from a classroom to the playground on the other side of the brick wall when she saw a flock of birds take flight. A fraction of a second later, she heard loud noises, four in succession. Peering over the wall to the parking lot, McNulty saw a minivan race away and several people gathered over a man on the ground with blood pouring from his head. She recognized him as Rusty Snyderman, a parent whose son Ian attended the preschool and whose daughter Sophia had been a student a few years previously. McNulty ushered the children back into the classroom and tried to dial 911 on her cell phone, but got busy signals. She told another teacher to go into the office and call for help. In the office, Donna Formato at first thought it was a bad joke. She went outside to find a crowd gathering around a prone man with what she later described as very gray skin. With somebody attending to the man, Formato went back inside the school. An office worker told her the victim was Ian Snyderman's dad, Rusty. Formato pulled the family emergency contact information card and dialed a work number for Ian's mother, Andrea Snyderman. The 911 call was relayed by the dispatcher at the DeKalb County Emergency Call Center to the patrol car of Dunwoody Police Department Officer Brian Tate. Somehow, the details of the incident had gotten garbled. The dispatcher initially sent him to the RBC bank in the Dunwoody Village Shopping Center for what was described as an armed robbery. Tate sped to the shopping center. A minute later, the dispatcher changed the call to a person being shot at Dunwoody Prep in the same mall. Tate arrived in just two minutes. Aliyah Stodder flagged him down and directed him toward the entrance to the school. As he got out of his patrol car, he could hear the siren from the approaching paramedic. Within seconds, emergency medical technician Rhoda Berkeley from the DeKalb County Fire and Rescue was on the scene. It was about 9.15 a.m. when the phone rang at Andrea Snyderman's desk. I told her something had happened at the school, that Ian was okay and that she needed to come to the school right away, Formato would later say. Formato said nothing about people hearing gunshots or having seen the ashen-faced Rusty, who was Andrea's husband. She didn't want to alarm Andrea any more than necessary, presuming she'd be driving to the school. Andrea started screaming into the phone. She demanded more information. Had something happened to Rusty? Formada refused to say more until Andrea got there. Andrea ran out of her office and down to the parking lot and drove off in her black SUV. Along the way, she made a number of calls on her cell phone. She called her parents, telling them that she was on her way to the daycare center. She also called her brother with the same message. Her parents and her brother all lived nearby and would meet her. She also called Rusty's father, Donald Snyderman, a retired accountant who lived in Cleveland, And she called her boss, Hemi Newman, on his cell phone.
1: I want to pause for a second. There's a lot happening here. We have Rusty dying on the asphalt. There are paramedics and police on the scene. Witnesses are gathered. Andrea, Rusty's wife, is on her way to the school. She calls close family and Hemi Newman her boss. Remember, at this point, she is still unaware that her husband has been shot. In this next section, we get deep into the chaos after Andrea pulls into the parking lot. Two detectives arrive on the scene, Jesus Maldonado and his sergeant on the police force, Gary Cortolino. As the ranking officer on the scene, Cortolino is an important figure in this story. Pay attention to his choices here and moving forward. Noteworthy as well is the lack of information the police provide Andrea. What happened to Rusty? Where was he taken? Why won't anyone tell her what's going on? We'll get there, but for now, we left off with Andrea,
2: Rusty's wife, driving to the school. She tore into the school parking lot, flung open her door, tumbled out, and ran toward the crime scene tape. Behind it sat Rusty's parked infinity. What happened? she screamed. Detective Jesus Maldonado from the Dunwoody Police Department intercepted her as she headed toward the crime scene tape. Calm down, he told her, leading her away from the crime scene and toward the front door of the daycare center. You gotta relax. Her knees buckled, and Maldonado caught her. Maldonado half carried her to the door, where she was met by two women who worked at Dunwoody Prep and another detective, Sergeant Gary Cordellino. The ranking officer on the scene, Cordelino, had arrived 20 minutes earlier, after Rusty had been taken away, and he temporarily took charge. He told officers to look for witnesses, called in crime scene techs to collect evidence, including the shell casings in the parking lot, and sent a detective to the hospital to talk to family members. He later acknowledged, being taken by surprise, that one of those family members would be right there in front of him. "'I really didn't know she was coming,' he later said. I wasn't prepared for that. Andrea continued to ask what was going on. Cordelino wouldn't tell her. Instead, he asked if she knew where Rusty had come from and where he was headed. Andrea told him she had no idea, and she'd later express frustration that she had answered questions when nobody would answer hers. She would also claim that Cordelino refused to tell her where Rusty had been taken. Cordelino would say that he wanted a detective to drive her to the hospital. She didn't need to be at the school, he said. At some point while inside the school, Andrea spoke on her cell phone to her parents. They were driving to meet her from their home in Roswell, 13 miles to the east. Eventually, her parents arrived, as did her brother. Among the four of them, they somehow ascertained that Rusty had been taken in an ambulance to an unidentified hospital after some sort of incident, Any more information, from the school, from the detectives, from anybody, would not be forthcoming. At the recommendation of Donna Formata, Andrea left Ian at the school, feeling it was better for him there while everybody sorted out what had happened to his father. Andrea's parents drove her to her house, and then her father called all the local hospitals. The Atlanta Medical Center confirmed that a Russell Snyderman had been admitted, but wouldn't say why or what his condition was. Andrea and her parents piled into the car and headed for the hospital while Andrea worked her cell phone, calling a longtime friend, Shayna Citron, Rusty's father, Donald, and her boss, Hemi Newman, again. The paramedics continued to perform CPR as they wheeled Rusty into the emergency room to attending physician Mark Waterman. A quick assessment told him the prognosis was grim. The man had suffered multiple gunshot wounds to his neck, near the carotid artery, and chest. It would later be determined that the first bullet entered the left side of the jaw, traveled through his jaw, and hit his right shoulder, ending up just below the skin in his back. The gunman fired at point-blank range. Rusty had stippling burns to the face from the gunpowder grains that shot out with the bullet. The second bullet came from farther away, probably while he lay on the asphalt. It entered the right side of his abdomen at the bottom of his ribcage and pierced his liver, diaphragm, and right lung, lodging itself just under the skin of the back, causing serious internal bleeding. Two more bullets went into his abdomen, slicing through his intestines and exiting from his back, causing more internal bleeding. Rusty also suffered a graze wound to his forearm, either from a separate fifth shot or, more likely, from one of the other bullets hitting him just below the elbow as he tried in vain to fend off the shots. Dr. Waterman checked his patient's pulse and breathing. All vital signs were flat. Within minutes... He declared Rusty Snyderman dead. The first news person to arrive was Dick Williams, publisher of the weekly Dunwoody Crier. It's unheard of, he said later. I've had this paper for 16 years, and that's probably homicide number four in all that time. News helicopters circled over the preschool, and vans from Atlanta's local TV stations rolled into the parking lot, telescoping up their transmission poles for live satellite reports. The early coverage was breathless. And now, panic outside a preschool began Fox TV affiliate anchor Tom Haynes on that night's telecast. The account in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution echoed the tone of disbelief. It called the murder a sensational crime that offers few obvious avenues for investigation. Within hours, interviews with Rusty's friends and colleagues and a scan of social networking sites, online databases, and company and government websites produced a glowing biography. Rusty was, by all accounts, a successful man of business with a background in finance and insurance. Raised in the Cleveland area, he came to Dunwoody from Boston to take a position as the CFO of a large Atlanta company. He'd recently struck out on his own as an entrepreneur. He had no known enemies, no criminal record, was active in local charities and in the Jewish community. Nearly every media account took note that he possessed a Harvard MBA. The early speculation was that Rusty was the victim of some sort of hit, Casey Jordan, a criminologist and professor at Western Connecticut State University, told Pete Combs' radio show, not long after the incident, that the shooting looked like an organized hit. The killer was either somebody who had a vendetta against Rusty or a shooter hired by somebody who did. Everything about the murder said professional assassin, she said. From the nondescript attire, to stymie identification, to the getaway vehicle without plates, the firing of multiple gunshots to make sure the job was done, and the fact that the victim's luxury car was left at the scene.
1: Now we're going to get into some nitty gritty evidence. Was this an organized hit, or was it less planned? There's evidence to point in either direction, and not a whole lot of physical clues. Would other avenues of investigation offer more here? You'll also meet Detective Andrew Thompson, who will be the lead detective on this case. We trace the steps he took immediately after he got to the crime scene, all the way through the end of the day of the murder.
2: The crime scene offered few answers and little evidence. A dead body and four brass shell casings scattered on the blacktop near Rusty's car. This told police the shooter used a semi-automatic, but ballistics couldn't narrow it down to a make or model of gun, much less where or when it was purchased. Eyewitnesses all told a similar story. A man, a van, and a gun. Nobody caught a license plate number, and most believed the van didn't have plates. Nobody recognized the shooter, though most agreed the beard looked fake. Security cameras trained on the parking lot captured the van entering and leaving, but didn't show the actual shooting. Shortly after 9 a.m., Detective Andrew Thompson of the Dunwoody Police Department heard the original radio call mistakenly alerting police to an incident at the bank. When word came across the radio that the getaway car was a silver van heading down Mount Vernon Road, he drove farther ahead and parked at an intersection in the hope of intercepting the suspect. But no silver vans appeared. He then went to Dunwoody Prep. His boss, Sergeant Cordelino, handed the case to Thompson, making him the lead detective. Previously an officer with the Atlanta Police Department for eight years, Thompson had only two years' experience as a detective working narcotics before coming to Dunwoody. This was his first turn as lead investigator for a homicide. He was pacing around the crime scene getting the lay of the land when he saw Andrea arrive. He didn't know her then, but assumed she was close to the victim. He would recall her behavior as very loud, very dramatic. Thompson spoke briefly to the eyewitnesses, Craig Kohlmeier Aaliyah Stotter, and Chris Lang, and the pediatrician Terrence Giffreurer, who had attempted to resuscitate Rusty. He took down their contact information for longer follow-up interviews. He called in the crime scene technicians to take measurements, photograph the scene, and collect evidence. Rusty had few personal effects when he died, an envelope in his jacket, a wedding ring, and a watch. Nobody could find his wallet. The witnesses hadn't seen the gunman take the wallet. The presumption was Rusty had raced out to drop off his son and had simply forgotten it. It was dark when Thompson and Cordelino pulled up to the Snyderman house on Mangot Court. It sat on a half-acre wooded lot against a forest traversed by walking paths. When they rang the doorbell, a couple who identified themselves as Andrea's parents opened the door. Thompson told them he had a search warrant and wanted to come in. We are a house in mourning, said Andrea's mother. Andrea's father told them they couldn't come in, according to Thompson. Thompson told him that police had a warrant and to get out of the way or go to jail for obstruction when Sergeant Cordellino interjected. Cortellino said they would come back tomorrow. In the paramilitary culture of police departments, a detective on his first murder case would never argue with a supervising sergeant. Thompson would later leave little doubt that he disagreed with the gentle handling of the family. We started this case at Rusty's death.
1: We'll come back to the minutes before and after the murder over and over. The silver minivan, the man with a fake beard and a silver pistol, the manic Andrea and her phone calls. The scene of the crime was chaotic. We have lead detective Andrew Thompson and his supervising sergeant, Gary Cortellino taking charge. We begin to see a rift between the two here, a rift that will be fateful as this case plays out. There are a lot of questions that still need answers, but with all murder cases, the fundamental one is... Who killed the victim? We get more details in the next episode about Rusty, Andrea, and their relationship. We also hear about Andrea's secret admirer, someone who quickly becomes a new suspect. But that's next time on Case Closed.
0: So you guys just heard the first episode of Case Closed. The drama, the mystery, the suspense. I know you can't handle it. <laughs> if you can't wait to hear the rest of the series, you don't have to. You can hear all fourteen episodes right now on Stitcher Premium, and you can get a free trial of Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com/caseclosed. Just use promo code True. Go do it, or we'll murder you. <laughs>